Okay, now let's go on to Genesis 6, verses 5 to 12. Genesis 6, 5 to 12. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verses 5 to 7, or excuse me, 5 to, yes, 5 to 7 describes generally the wickedness of man. And then in contrast, Verse 8, Noah is the exception. And then, generally speaking, verses 9 to 12, Noah and his family are preserved, and yet the rest of the earth is filled with violence, evil, and deserves the wrath of God. This passage continues from verses 1 to 4 to describe the wickedness of the people. The wickedness of the people is described like this and emphasized here to make certain that we not blame God for the destruction of the earth. We cannot impugn God, blame Him, call Him unjust, unfair, impatient, nothing like that. The guilt goes squarely on the shoulders of man. That's the point of this passage. And then the exception with Noah happens because of the favor of God or the grace of God. So everyone is corrupt except Noah. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It says, the wickedness of man was great. Not a little bit, but a whole lot. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But his heart, inside, everything he thought about was only evil continually. He's being very explicit. Wickedness is great. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart. That means it starts on the inside of the man and works its way on the outside of the man. What's in his head manifests itself in his hands and his feet and his eyes and his mouth and everything else that man uses physically to commit sin. And also, it's only evil continually. Not partially good, partially evil, but only evil. And it's not only evil sometimes, but all the time, is the point. This is the condition. Condition of man. When he's saying this, he's emphasizing that man is corrupt, completely deserving of the wrath of God. Now, this does not remain the case only pre-flood. Though it was bad before the flood... It was also bad after the flood because man is man. And unless he is redeemed, and unless God changes his heart by the grace of God and the Spirit of God using the Word of God, it will not happen. We know that this is the case also after the flood because of Genesis 8.21. Genesis 8.21 has a similar statement. 
8.21 says, And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. He clarifies what he means by not destroying it again, by not destroying it with water again. But he will destroy the whole globe with fire. Second Peter chapter 3 affirms that. He will destroy the whole earth with fire in the future upon the return of Christ. But at this point, he's not going to destroy it by a worldwide flood again. And he calls it, calls man's heart. Uh, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Yep. Evil from his youth. Youth does not mean teenager, as we use the word youth in English now. It means from his conception. From the time that he is an infant until he dies, that's the way man's heart is. It's evil inside. That's similar to what we just read in Genesis 6, verse 5. And this also continues in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 5. Romans 8, 5 to 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There are only two kinds of people. Those who are setting their minds on the flesh or the things of the flesh or those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If it's the flesh, then it's death. If it's the Spirit, then it's life and peace. Why? Because there is hostility between the flesh and God. This is the same as Genesis 6. There is hostility between the flesh and God because the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God. It does not obey the laws of God. Not only does it not obey, speaking of it as descriptive or indicative, it does not do it, but also it doesn't even have the potential of doing it. It doesn't have the power to do it. It is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's New Testament. Even Jesus said in John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The things that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. This is, throughout the whole Bible, this is the way man is. At this point in the time of Noah, it reached its full measure, and God was ready to wipe them out. Then it says in verse 6, Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Verse 5 says the Lord saw. And in verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man, and he, he was grieved in his heart. And in verse 7, he says, I am sorry that I have made them. What does this mean? It means that God sees the condition of man, how bad it is, and he is ready to punish. He's grieved or it bothers him or his sense of justice has now arisen and he is ready to act on that justice, his justice and righteousness. He has dealt with them enough and he's also explaining that 
he's not pleased with what he sees. Remember Romans 8 says he, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because these people are in the flesh, they cannot and will not do anything that pleases God. And if they cannot do anything that pleases God, they won't receive his favor or his grace. They receive his justice. That's the point of the passage, that it's time for God to inflict his justice because God has been patient with them long enough. Their fruits have been manifested and they are rotten fruits. They're not good edible fruits. They are rotten fruits. Therefore, they deserve his wrath. That's why he describes it this way. He is not describing it this way. Moses does not describe God this way because God had a second plan or a third plan. He had plan A, B, C, D, <laughs> nothing like that, so that he has to, after seeing what happens that God did not foresee, then he sees, now he has to think of a better way to approach the creation of man. That's not what's happening here. As though God did not ordain or he did not foresee any of these things. What he foresees, he foreordains. What he foreordains, he foresees. The two are bound up together. That is true in the Bible, that God not only knows the future, but he creates the future. For example, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10. Declaring the, uh, the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He says he declares the end from the beginning from ancient times things which have not been done. He says it in advance, and that his purpose will be established, and he will accomplish all his good pleasure. God will do whatever he desires to do. That's why it says in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things after the counsel of his will. God works all things after the counsel of his will. And the more familiar passage to us, Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things to work together for good. If he doesn't control all things, then how can he make all things work toward our benefit? To the benefit of those who love him. He controls all things. That's why he's able to use all things, even the harsh things of the world, even the evil things of the world, or the sinfulness of man for our good, for our benefit. And... That is the God of the Bible. That's the God of Genesis. We know him to be the, this way. He's the almighty creator and sustainer. So if that is the case, and that's true biblically, then as we interpreted Genesis 6, 5 and 6, when it says he's sorry, he was grieved, it's merely saying that God has been patient enough, he is displeased, he is upset, he is wrathful, and he's, his righteousness will now be manifested towards these people who refuse repentance. That's the context. And he's saying it this way so that we understand that God has put up with it for a while. Now he's grieved based on what he has seen, and now he's ready to punish. Okay? That's what he means. Now, let me illustrate this by going to 
1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. God had commissioned Saul, King Saul, to punish the Amalekites, to obliterate the Amalekites, and not to spare anyone. But Saul did not do so. And Samuel the prophet was the one who commissioned him by the word of the Lord, and then Samuel confronted him for his disobedience. And it says in 1 Samuel 15, 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. It says, I regret. That's similar to what we have in Genesis 6. And then it says at the end of the chapter, 1 Samuel 15, 35. 15, 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. There's regret. Now, verse 29, 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Samuel says about God's purposes, like it says in Isaiah 46.10, like it says in Romans 8.28, whatever God ordains to happen will happen. So when it says that he regrets or he changes his mind, it's merely saying that he is displeased with what he sees and he's letting us know that he is displeased and he is ready to punish. But otherwise, in terms of the overall purpose of God, and even the way that that purpose is fulfilled in specific details, in all the details of the world, God does not lie. He does not change his mind because he's not a man. Right. He is God. He's spirit. He is not flesh. So we must understand these biblical expressions in that way. They are known as anthropomorphisms, that is, God speaking in human form, in human form or human terms or even human emotions. He speaks like that so that we understand what he thinks about the matter for our comprehension. Not because God has plan B and C and D. No. That not because God does not know the future. Not because of any of those reasons. Because if one assumes God did not know the future, then we would have a contradiction between Genesis 6 and Isaiah 46.10, Romans 8.28, Ephesians 1.11, even Romans 11.33-36. All kinds of passages would be in contradiction. Right. Well, because there would be two major sets of passages, those which say God knows and controls the future, and other passages that say He does not know the future. When actually He does know the future... And the passages that are spoken in human terms are there so that we have an idea of what God thinks of the matter and what he's about to do based on what he thinks of the matter. That's why those are explained. And to further illustrate this, doesn't the Bible say, doesn't Jesus call himself a door? Doesn't Jesus call himself a shepherd? Right? Doesn't Jesus call himself a light? Doesn't the Bible call God a fortress, a rock, 
Does it not describe God as a lion? Does it not describe Jesus as a lion? There are so many, so many illustrations like this that the Bible uses to describe God. But it does not mean that God is a literal rock, or that he is a literal door, or that he is a literal shepherd. It's explaining an analogy in human terms so that we understand some attribute or some action of God, or both. That's the reason. And that's what this passage is doing. Let's continue. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. In verse 7, those creatures that possess blood and breath are mentioned. Those creatures that possess blood and breath are mentioned. Man, animals, creeping things, and birds. This category of creatures that have blood and breath, this is what God chose to destroy most of them, except the ones spared on the ark. He chose to destroy during the time of the flood, the great flood. In chapter 7, it'll become more clear, or actually towards the end of chapter 6, and especially in chapter 7, more clear that he is destroying all of these, and he's sparing some of them, but destroying all of these. And when I say all, he's destroying all. All that were not on the ark, he literally wiped out all the rest of them that were not on the ark. He did not spare some on the ark and then some in another place, in another continent or some other area of the world. This was not locally done. It was globally done. The flood was a global catastrophe. It was a global incident, not a local, regional incident. Then we might ask, why is it that these blood and breath creatures, in whom is the uh, breath of life, as it will tell us in the next um, part, the breath of life is in them, because they are created in close association with man. They're not the same as man because they don't possess the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28 make that clear, that they were not created in the image of God, so they're not like us, they're not rational, they're not redeemable, so, but they are yet like us in that they have blood and breath. And therefore, when God punishes us, He not only punishes us, but He punishes those creatures that are close to us. He punishes those creatures that are close to us because of our sin, that we might understand the magnitude of our sin, that it even impacts those other creatures that are meant to be there for our benefit. They are meant to be there for our benefit, yet our sin hurts them. Our sin harms them, as well as ourselves. It further heightens and shows God's disdain for our sin because the punishment is not just on us, but on them. And this happened in the first instance in Genesis 3, 21. The Lord God made garments of skin and he clothed the man and his wife. The first death of an animal happened because of man's sin back there in Genesis 3, 21. Verse 8, Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Noah found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was the exception. All the rest of men were wicked and their wickedness was great, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we read of Noah in verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah had a godly life. He manifested his righteousness, but it's not a legalistic righteousness. It's not Noah's own efforts, Noah's own good deeds, Noah's own good works. It's not Noah's fruit produced in and of himself. These deeds of Noah, the favor that God bestows on Noah is not because of Noah's deeds. They do not originate in himself. They are manifested in Noah, they are evidenced in Noah, but they don't originate in Noah. We know they don't originate in his deeds because we do know it's a matter of the heart. Did he not say so in verse 5? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That means that if the deed is going to be righteous, then the heart has to be righteous. If the deed is going to be good, then the heart has to be good. If the heart is evil, if the heart is impure, then the deed will be impure. That's the way the Bible looks at it. That means then, did Noah create his own physical heart? No. So, did Noah create his own spiritual heart? Did he renew his own spiritual heart? No. It would take a miracle of God to change his heart so that his deeds are righteous and acceptable in the sight of God. Right. It takes God to change the heart. So when it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, God saw the evidence, the tangible evidence of his good deeds, but there was something that preceded that to make what God saw good. Okay. How do we know this? We know this from examples in Exodus. Exodus 33, Exodus and Romans. Exodus 33, we have Moses. We know Moses is a man of God, correct? And God's favor was with him. Notice what it says in Exodus 33, 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said... I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. God is explaining, I have known you by name, which is something God does to select and isolate Moses among the rest of the people. Correct? Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. There he repeats that same expression. You have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. But though this is true, does God explain where it started? How did that get initiated? Verse 19, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious 
to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. The second part of the verse. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Do you see the one-way street there? You see the one-way street. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I don't cooperate with anybody. I do what I want to do. I am gracious to whom I want to be gracious. Then, cross-reference to confirm this interpretation. Romans 9, 14. 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raise you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul quotes Moses and says God is not unjust. And then he says in verse 15 when he quotes Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's Exodus 33, 19. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It did not depend on Noah's will or Noah's running, Noah's effort, his work, but on God who had mercy on Noah. And because God had mercy on Noah, he changed the heart of Noah, and God, God changing his heart produced good fruit in Noah. This is the favor that God saw in Noah. The favor that he put in Noah is what God saw manifested in Noah. Furthermore, Genesis 6, 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. These are the records of the generations of Noah. This is a record, and likely, since this phrase occurs, the generations of occurs 11 times in the book of Genesis, it's likely that this is a compilation of the histories, a record book, a chronicle of the lives of these various patriarchs. And this right here is saying that this is happening and a record of the generations of Noah's time. Verse 9 continues. Generations of Noah, perhaps in the plural, in the case of Noah because of his lifespan, but regardless of the, the interpretation of that, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. These descriptors are descriptors of a redeemed man. Noah did not have his own righteousness, but he had righteousness in Christ. That's why it says in 2 Peter 2, 5, that he was a preacher of righteousness. He had the righteousness of Christ. That's why he was righteous. And because he was righteous, he preached righteousness. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. 1 Samuel 24, 13. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. So then you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 15, and 16. Jesus, David, the scriptures are very clear 
that if we are righteous, it's because we are declared righteous by faith in Christ. This also shows that Noah believed in Christ. He believed in Christ. He could not have had his own righteousness. He had to have the righteousness of Christ reckoned to his account for him to be holy or for him to be godly. Um, He was blameless, blameless in his time. Blameless does not mean sinless. It means that he did not have any overt, heinous, obvious sin that plagued him, his life, his family, and that spilled over and molested and infested the culture all around him. He did not do anything like that. In fact, he lived a very self-controlled, restrained life. That's why it's, it's calling him blameless. Blameless in the Bible does not mean sinless. Nobody is ever sinless until he meets the Lord face to face. And then he walked with God. Walking with God is first said here of of, uh, Noah, but it was said of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, twice of him in Genesis 5 verse 22. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years. And in 5.24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You see, Adam and Eve in the garden, they were supposed to walk with God. They did not walk with God. God, though, walked among them to confront them. And then, if they're going to walk with God, it has to happen, as we just said about Noah, if God changes the heart, and then once he changes the heart... They put faith in Christ. They repent of their sins, put faith in Christ. And then they walk with God. And they preach righteousness to others. Walking with God is an analogy that describes godly living. Holy living. Walking in obedience. Doing what God's will is for their life. That's what it means to walk with God. And Noah did so. To compare what we have just read about Noah, there are some references here that we can consult about Noah and his righteousness. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Not only will these references support the righteousness of Noah, they will also contrast the wickedness of man to Noah's righteousness, and these passages will establish the historicity of Noah's life. That what we read in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, and so forth, we're not dealing with fictions and fables. We're dealing with facts, historical accounts, a real person. These other references will prove that point. So the first one, Isaiah 54, 54, verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Speaking of rebellious people, unredeemed people who have become redeemed, God says, "Now, now that you are redeemed, my loving kindness will never be separated from you, never be removed from you, and my covenant of peace. Covenant of peace is the same as the covenant of grace or the everlasting covenant or the new covenant, which means 
that these redeemed ones in Isaiah 54.10 are also like Noah. They have the same experience as Noah. And God says, I'm not going to rebuke you. I'm not going to be angry with you anymore because you are now redeemed. And he compares them to Noah. Noah was spared. They are also spared. A second reference in the Old Testament is Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, verse 12. Ezekiel the prophet also preaches, and he's preaching to a crooked and perverse generation. And it says in verse 12, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroying uh, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated, and it became desolate, so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts, though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, Let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. God compares these people. All of the contemporaries are wicked. And the righteousness of Noah or Job or Daniel, just as it did not spare everyone else around them, in the same way that would not happen in the time of Ezekiel. He is echoing the fact that Noah was righteous, but everybody else around him was wicked. Furthermore, we have Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 37. 24, 37. Christ makes reference to Noah. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Just as we know that the return of Christ is certain and is unexpected to the people of the world because they are sons of darkness and it will overtake them like a thief in the night. That day of the Lord will overtake them. But it won't overtake us just as it did not overtake Noah. Noah knew because Noah believed the word of God that the flood would come. Furthermore, we have Luke 3.36 as an example of of the historicity of Christ, of Noah and of Christ. In Luke 3.36, it says, this is a genealogy of Jesus through Mary, going all the way back to Adam and God. And it says in 3.36, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpachshad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, so forth. Noah there is in the genealogy of Jesus. So, what we believe about Jesus, we should also believe about Noah. What we believe of Noah, we should believe of Jesus. That they were both historical persons 
that the events, even the miraculous events surrounding their life, actually did happen in this world. None of it is fiction. Let's continue in Luke, Luke 17, 17, 26. Luke 17, 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 7. Hebrews eleven seven, on Noah's faith. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This passage confirms that he had faith, which originates in the heart, and he was an heir of righteousness, just like Genesis 15, 6 says, that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is the same righteousness that was possessed by Noah. And as well, because we, uh, I said earlier that Noah put his faith in Christ, I know there isn't a verse in the Bible that says it explicitly, Noah believed in Christ. But we can uh, believe that and should believe that based on other factors. For example, in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, it actually does say that Moses believed in Christ. Hebrews 11, and we'll start at verse 24. 11, 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses regarded the reproach of Christ greater riches. It does not say reproach of God in a generic sense, but it says reproach of Christ. And if it is the reproach of Christ, what was so ignoble or so, so spiteful or negative, infamous about Christ? His death on the cross. His death on the cross. So Moses believed in the reproach of Christ or the death of Christ. This is confirmed also in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. We need to bear the reproach of Christ just as Moses bore the reproach of Christ. This is like Luke 9.23, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Bearing Christ's reproach, take up the cross daily, and follow me. So, if Moses believed in the reproach of Christ, and he was righteous, he was a man of faith, and Noah is called righteous, and Abraham is called righteous, all of these men of the Old Testament, they believed in Christ, in the death and resurrection of Christ, for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That was their righteousness. 1 Peter 3.20 1 Peter 3.20 continuing on Noah we'll, let's start at verse 18 1 Peter 
For Christ also died for sins once for all, but just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Peter confirms this historical incident that in the days of Noah, God was patient and God spared Noah and his family. Total of eight persons. And then we have 2 Peter 2, 5. 2 Peter 2, 5. Continuing the subject from the previous passage or verse, God. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was preserved or saved. He was a preacher of righteousness. He, along with seven others, were saved, and God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. All the rest of the world were ungodly. And then we have 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Noah was this way. And it says back to Genesis 6.10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These were his own only three, and he lived to be 950 years old. So though God had blessed in terms of posterity the other descendants of Adam, in Genesis 5, he only blessed Noah in this way, in this limited way. I said he lived to be 950 years. That's Genesis 9, 29. He lived to be that long. Then, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. The earth. Now when it says the earth, it doesn't mean the trees the dirt, the rocks. It's talking about the people of the earth. The people of the earth. Sometimes the Bible will speak of the people of the earth in an abbreviated fashion like this. The earth was filled. For example, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. The whole earth used the same language and the same words. Or David says in 1 Kings 2.2, 2, I am going the way of all the earth. Yeah. Meaning, all the people of the earth die, and now it's about time for me to die. I am going the way of all the earth. And that's what's meant here. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Why? Now he's explicit. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. When he says all flesh, he means... All of the humans had corrupted their way on the earth. This is how evil they were. Um, they were corrupt. They were filled with violence. And he mentions it uh, three times that they were corrupt in verses 11 and 12. 
their corruption, their corrupt nature manifested itself in corrupt conduct. And part of that corrupt conduct was violence. There was no, there was no humility or there was no restraint for shedding innocent human blood. There's no restraint in shedding innocent human blood. We also see in verse 12, it says, All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And by all flesh, he means all flesh except Noah. Because the context tells us that. Noah himself had not corrupted his way the way that the rest of the earth was just described as having corrupted their way. Noah did not do so, and that was because God's grace was upon Noah. His favor was upon Noah, and he was spared. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.